Well, good morning. Welcome to worship, all of you here in the worship center, all of you over in the chapel, all of you at our Minnetonka campus, and anyone who is watching online. And those of you that I can see face-to-face right now, you look especially rested and refreshed with that extra hour of sleep, and that means you are ready to dig into a nice light topic of idolatry today, all right? So you ready ready to go? I hope you have your Bibles or your phone app and we're gonna jump in. But, you know, when we start, I want you to think about what do you think of when you hear the word idol? What comes to mind when you hear the word idol? I think many people, they probably think of this. A singing show, right? Ryan Seacrest, some people trying their best on stage to be the next American idol. Maybe there's others of you who think about a scene in the Indiana Jones movies where he is finding a golden idol. Now, this makes me think of sixth grade math. Maybe the only thing I remember from sixth grade math, our teacher had us calculate how heavy this idol would have been made out of solid gold. And I remember 170 pounds. There's no way he would have that in one hand. Now, maybe there's others of you who would think of your favorite athlete because there are many kids, maybe many adults today who idolize different athletes. Or if you're a big music fan like me, maybe you think of a very certain snarling rock star. No Billy Idol fans out there, right? Well, so it goes. So you might be aware that idols and idolatry are a very frequent topic in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. There was a moment of crisis that happened after the Israelites were led out of captivity in Egypt. All right, so they're wandering in the desert for 40 years and they're headed for the promised land. And God specifically warned Moses to warn the people not to engage in any idolatry. Don't get distracted by all of these other small G gods because it would mean they would miss out on God's tremendous blessings. And so we see this show up in the book of Exodus chapter 20. We're gonna look at verse 22. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, you saw for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven, Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. Build for me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered and I will come to you and bless you. Now we need to remember people at that time in history didn't have checkbooks, they didn't have credit cards, they didn't even have paper money. Farmers would use their crops as currency, ranchers would use their livestock. And so God is saying, take what you are using for your currency, the things that you use to buy and sell goods, Really, whatever our currency is, we hold in high esteem in our culture and in our lives. And God is saying that I'm going to make a covenant with you. But part of that covenant is that you should invest and you should be part of my kingdom work on earth. 
And so he expects them to be actively involved in the building of his kingdom on earth through their investment. And he's saying, when you invest into my kingdom, it is one of the clearest signs of where your faith and your trust lie. And so things are going pretty well for a couple chapters. And then it kind of goes off the rail. The moment doesn't last long because Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the 10 commandments, this covenant that God has made with his people. He's getting it in God's own handwriting. It's this monumental moment. But while he's up on the mountain, Aaron, who's Moses's right-hand man, is at his wit's end because the people will not stop complaining and grumbling about everything. They're even saying they would rather go back to slavery in Egypt. And so this is what happens in Exodus chapter 32. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, things definitely went off the rails. They go from hearing the voice of God this reminder to stay devoted and focused on him and the blessings that he has given them and how he has rescued them. And now in this moment, they're worshiping an idol. Now, this is meant to be a stark warning for all of God's people, not only at this time in history, but also for us, for generations to come. God is saying, be careful, whatever you do, Don't worship idols. But I don't know about you, but when I read this story or other stories of Old Testament idol worship, I can't help but think, I don't struggle with that at all. Like I am never tempted to have some little statue of a cow and to bow down in front of it. How about you? Like it's pretty easy to say, I can check that one off the list very confidently. But I remember back to a few different travels we've had throughout Asia. And when we've traveled in Asia, we just love the culture and we love the people, we love the food. And a big part of traveling through Asian countries is going to these very historic Buddhist temples. And no matter what country we're in, whether it's Thailand or Vietnam or China or Korea, it's kind of these these different huge statues of Buddha and it's all sorts of people bowing to these idols. And it's just a remarkable thing to witness. I remember being in a very rural area of Korea and we went to this temple that was just in a field and it was known to have 1 million Buddha statues. They were tiny, just everywhere. And then one gigantic Buddha statue. And I remember we watched a big tour bus pull up and a whole crowd of people piled off the bus. They immediately went into the temple. They found a pillow. They all brought their pillows over in front of the huge statue of Buddha. And they just started bowing like just fast bow, bow, bow. And a little bit later, the bus driver came in, he yelled something and they all got up and they got on the bus and presumably went to the next temple. I remember my sister saying she taught 
English over in Korea for a couple of years, saying on Monday mornings in the teachers' lounges, a lot of the teachers would be sharing about how sore they were because of all the hours they had put in bowing in the temple. It was kind of a badge of honor. Now, when I witness this, I kind of feel uncomfortable and I'm trying to process what is going on and be honest, I'm a little judgmental because again, I don't struggle with bowing to statues. But you know, then along the way, I've heard some very impactful teachings from pastors and from teachers who point out, you know, there are many other ways that you can engage in idolatry. Idolatry is not just an ancient reality. It's not just something that takes place in faraway cultures. No, it's actually still alive and well today. So there's a pastor in Ohio named Mike Slaughter, and he defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that receives the primary focus of my energy or resources which should first belong to God. Now, when we look at idols in that way, not just little golden statues, I think suddenly this all becomes so much more relevant and also so much more convicting because there are so many things in each one of our lives that have the potential to become idols. And the truth is many of the things that we're inclined to turn into idols are actually really good things. Good gifts that God has given to us that suddenly are out of focus and become our wrong priority. And I think what we really need to be concerned with and be on the watch for is that we don't end up worshiping the gift instead of the giver. In fact, the apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one. He says, instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Be careful not to worship the gift instead of the giver. So when you think of it that way, well, relationships can become an idol when those relationships take God's rightful place. Whether it's friendships or our spouse or our children, they're all definitely a gift from God, but they're not meant to take his rightful place in our lives. His interests should come first. Now for others, food can become an idol. Food is a gift from God, right? He could have just made us eat flavorless paste and just survive that way, but he gave us amazing food to eat. But when it gets out of whack in our life, when we put the wrong focus on it, it can become an addiction. 
Or maybe for others, it's politics and politicians. I mean, we can easily spend hours a day getting updates and news about politics. And we can become so committed to a particular political party or political philosophy that we in turn turn God into a card-carrying member of our particular tribe instead of allowing him to critique and correct our wrong viewpoints. Material possessions can easily become an idol in many of our lives. It's easy to spend so much time trying to be fashionable or cool or trendy or up to date. We can want the newest car, the newest iPhone, the newest technology, and it's a pretty easy slide into obsession and even addiction. Now, I've got to be honest for a moment Because kind of like my attitude towards people worshiping statues, I can really look down on materialism because my wife would tell you, I am not a spender. Like I'm always wondering, do we really, really need to buy this? But you know, when I'm also honest with myself, I realize that my tendency My struggle is turning experiences into idols. I might not like to shell out money on material stuff, but give me a concert or a sporting event or some other experience and I'm in, I'm ready to go and I can justify all the spending that needs to be. But you know, I believe I'm not the only one like this here today that is critical of the stuff that I don't struggle with but also I'm willing to turn a blind eye to the thing that competes to be first in my life. Can you relate to that? Now, I think there's another powerful truth that we need to acknowledge here, and that's this. We actually become what we worship. We become what we worship. It's the end game of idolatry or devotion to God. Psalm 115 puts it like this. The idols of the nations are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. And those who make idols are just like them as are all who trust in them. There's a theologian named Greg Beale. And I love this quote in one of his books. He says, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. So when we revere the things of this world, well then we are conformed to the image of the sinful, broken world that we live in. And it leads to addictions and selfishness and deception and dishonesty. Really doing anything we can to get more of what we crave. But when we revere God, First and foremost, then we're progressively conformed into his image and his likeness. See, again, we're formed into the image of whatever we worship, whatever we put first in our lives. And here's the biggest problem. Idols can never deliver what they promise, right? Idols can never follow through on what they claim to promise. So whether it's money or power or status or food or experiences or materialism, they will never ever be enough. And we know this to be true, right? You might buy the newest and the best of something and it's great and you're super excited 
for a little bit until the next one comes out, until the charm wears off, until you regret the loan you took out. And it's because we were created by God and for God. And it's only him that can truly satisfy and fulfill us. But think about how much time and energy and resources we put towards looking anywhere and everywhere else. We keep looking for more and better and newer, and yet it's never enough. So it really comes down to this, church. There is a competition for your heart. It's the title of the message today, the competition. There is a competition for your heart. Who or what is going to be first? You see, God wants our exclusive devotion, and it's not because he's on an ego trip. No, it's because he wants the very best for you. It's for our own good. I want you to look at a passage from the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament. It's in chapter 17, starting with verse 38. And God says, do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other small G gods. Rather worship the Lord, your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. So I want to point a few things out from this passage. First of all, there's a churchy but vitally important word right off the bat, and it's the word covenant. See, a covenant is a forever, no matter what kind of relationship. It's a commitment despite any other circumstances. Marriage is meant to be a covenant relationship. God chooses to make a covenant with his people. He promises to be our God, to be present with us through whatever life has in store. So look back at verse 38. He says, don't forget this covenant. And then he tells us our end of the bargain. He says, worship the Lord, your God. Now you might think, well, one hour Sunday morning, that's easy. And I'm here today. So I get to check it off the list. But you see, worship is so much more than one hour on Sunday morning. It's a lifestyle. It's 24-7. It's living in devotion to God every moment of the day. That is what he wants from us. And in return, it says, it is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. God will be our God. He will be present with us and he will protect us from whatever life has in store. Now, there are all sorts of other things and items and people in the world who try to make all sorts of promises, but it is only God who can deliver on his covenant promises. But then look at verse 41. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, all right, they're on the right track. They're holding up their end of the covenant. It says they were also serving their idols. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that it's possible to worship God 
but to still hang on to our idols. Think about that for a moment. You see, God is saying it's not just good enough to show up on Sunday. And it's not good enough to just know all the words to the songs. It's not good enough to just check the worship service off on your list. He's saying, and maybe it's convicting some of us, that it's entirely possible to have a divided heart. It's possible to come and go through the motions, but not actually be fully devoted and committed to him. We can do all the right things on the outside, but still be clinging to the old comfortable idol on the inside. Now the prophet Isaiah, also in the Old Testament, he talks about this. He says, and so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Again, it's a warning against having a divided Hearts. You can say all the right things, but where is your heart? But here's the thing. It's not only harmful to our own spiritual journey and our own spiritual life. It's even bigger than that. Because what we see here is that idolatry, not putting God first, actually rubs off on our children. Look at verse 41. It says, to this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. So what is God telling us? He's saying your grandchildren, your children won't necessarily adopt what you say you believe. You can have them memorize a list of bullet points. It may or may not do any good, but your kids and your grandkids will most likely adopt your passions, where your heart actually lies. Now, when you say you believe something, but it's out of sync with your passion, with your actions, kids will sniff that out a mile away. But they will also see where your passion really lies. Now, ever since I can remember, I've been a passionate Minnesota sports fan for every single sport. Like I've never understood the people who kind of do a choose your own adventure. Like they're a Yankees fan and a Spurs fan and a Blackhawks fan. Like it doesn't make any sense. So I'm right down the list, all Minnesota sports, which probably says a lot about me and I probably should be in counseling, right? We were actually at the Gopher game yesterday and I don't want to talk about it. But I think about where my passion for Minnesota sports came from. It's probably all the hours of games that I watched with my dad on television, all the times that we went to live events together. And now as I look at my own kids, they have developed a passion for Minnesota sports teams, and it's awesome. But it also has shown me the importance of being very clear with them, with my own kids, about my passion for God and the gospel. It's why we've gone out of our way to try to give them every opportunity to go to Bible camp and mission trips and to come weekly to youth group here at church and to see us engage in spiritual life with God. You see, again, we can say whatever we want, but our passions ultimately make the difference. So let me ask you this morning, what priorities and what passions are you demonstrating for your kids and your grandkids? 
What do they conclude about what you truly value and what you worship just by watching you? Would they find lasting hope and lasting purpose by following your lead? So as we close out our time together this morning, I want to invite you to do something that might be a little uncomfortable. It might be kind of convicting. It might be really tempting to just think about what you're going to order at brunch today. It might be tempting to try to think about how the quarterback situation is going to go in the Vikings game this afternoon. But I'm going to ask you to try to focus just for a moment on looking at the condition of your own hearts. I want you to do an honest heart evaluation, an assessment of how you're doing facing the biggest competition in your life. It's really a question of who or what is really first place in your life and in your heart. Now, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, keep God first, no matter what. Make sure he's your first and best priority. Make sure he gets your focus and attention and he'll take care of the rest. So I think number one, the first indicator of what you truly worship is how you spend your time. I want you for a moment to take a mental inventory of your calendar, all the things that you have going in a given week, because I think it will reveal what you really, truly worship, because we take time for the things that are most important to us. But I also want to observe a couple things as you think about your calendar A few things to remember. Now, one is for many of us, work is going to be one of the biggest chunks of time out of our week, right? So does that mean that we're automatically worshiping our work? Not necessarily. The question is, are you keeping proper boundaries around your work? Is work where you're finding your meaning and your purpose and your identity? And are you inviting God to be present, and to be active, even in your work life. But also remember, just filling our calendar up with church events and church activities is not what God wants either. No, Jesus is most concerned with our personal relationship with him and keeping him as our first love. The book of Revelation John is writing a letter to seven churches in Asia. One of the churches is in a place called Ephesus. And he's saying, I know all the great things that you are doing as a church, all of the ways that you're trying to keep the faith. But he says, but this is what I have against you. You do not love me now as you did at first. He's saying, you have lost your first 
love. Now, don't think of this in the emotional, feely kind of way. It's not about falling in love with God per se. This is about our devotion and our commitment to him. Is he number one in your life? Or has someone else or something else taken his place? You can fill up your time with all sorts of good and worthwhile things, but don't forget your first love. Don't forget where your devotion and your commitment should really be. Don't misplace your passion. Keep first things first. The second indicator of what we truly worship is our bank and investment statements. Because money is one of the truest and most accurate measures of our faith. And that's not my own idea. That's what Jesus had to say. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me ask you, what do your finances, what does your cash flow, what does your amount of generosity say about your heart? You see, when we fall into idolatry, we put ourselves at the center of the universe. We evaluate our spending and our time and our energy based on how well they serve us. Do they add or subtract to our comforts? And we end up looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose in anything and everything but God. Now, we might create a little space for Jesus, especially, you know, Sunday morning like today. But honestly, he's far from the center. You know, it's easy to try to keep him out of our checkbook, out of our bank account, out of our investments, because, I mean, he lived 2,000 years ago. What does he know about that kind of stuff? But you see, Jesus said he came to bring us an abundant life. And that means he needs to be at the center of all of who we are, including being the deciding influence on every aspect of our life, including our money and our time and our energy. Now, it means an invitation to join him in his mission of redeeming and restoring the world. So how you allocate your money, does it reflect that reality? Does it reflect an investment in what God is trying to do in the world? In fact, what does it say about your heart? Now, personally, I've found one of the very best ways to stay focused on keeping Jesus at the center of my life is to regularly and consistently give generously to his mission through the church. And it's because of this spiritual truth. Your heart follows your money. Your heart follows your money. You know this to be true. If you want to care a little bit more for something, just send some money that way. Suddenly you'll develop a heart for it. I think back to many years ago when my family decided we were going to support a child through Compassion International. And so we picked a little boy, a four-year-old boy who lives in Indonesia. And suddenly, as we invested into this ministry, that's where our heart went. We have a heart for this boy, but we also have a heart for Indonesia. If I ever see Indonesia in the news, I'm going to read everything I can 
because your heart follows your money. So as you struggle with keeping first things first, when you face the competition in your life, like we all do, my challenge for you is to give your first and your best to God. Because isn't he worth more than your leftovers? Like, God, I've got a a few bucks left over at the end of the month. I guess I can give those to you. Isn't God worth more than just a tip? Like, you know, God, I'll give you this little chunk of change because you were extra good this week. Isn't God worth more than that? Don't try to figure out the minimum. Instead, give generously and freely and let God challenge you. Because the truth is, church, you can't outgive God. No matter how hard you try, you can't outgive him. Because everything we have belongs to him. It's just trusted to our care for a short bit of time. But not only that, he gave his only son for you. And don't let your mind go towards comparison. It's so easy to think about what everybody else is doing. And don't become selfish thinking, well, I deserve it. I earned it. It's mine. No, everything belongs to God. And don't go towards rationalization like, well, I really don't need to give because of X, Y, Z. All of those things will keep you disconnected from God. It will keep you distant from him. Trust in him and see how he will keep his promise, how he will bring blessings into your life like you never imagined. So in closing, if you've never given to God's mission before, why not start today? It's the key to putting him first in your life. What's holding you back? You know, generosity, like so many things in our life, takes momentum. And so that first bit of giving starts that process. Now, if your calendar and your bank account don't seemingly have God at the center, the good news is it's not too late to start. Step out in faith. Take your first step. Seek first the kingdom of God. Eliminate the chief competition for your heart. And then see what God will do. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that you are an incredibly generous God, that every good gift we have comes from you. We don't own any of it, but God, you know everyone here today struggles with idolatry. We struggle with getting things out of order in our life. We struggle with putting things in front of you. And so God, help us to face that competition in our hearts and to put you first. God, help us to invest into your kingdom and your mission. Help us to put our treasure where we want our heart to be. And that's with you. And so God, I pray for every person here, wherever they're at, that you would clearly show them the next step. And that you're here to walk with us to give us your peace, to give us your guidance, and to give us your promises. God, help us to live for you in all that we do, in all that we spend, in all of our time, 
and in all of our energy. We, God, we give it all to you in the powerful name of Jesus. And let's all say together.